Hello everybody, Sucreyaro here, and you're listening to, to your blank ear stories. <clears throat> um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I forgot what I was saying because I started like abruptly, slightly shifting to like Scottish, and <laughs> it caught me off guard because I wasn't I wasn't trying to do that, and I didn't even like you know. It just started happening. And I... <coughs> oh, I have no more water. I spilled the little water I had on my book. Feck. <laughs> oh, man. This is the fourth episode I'm recording today. Um, I've explained this already, so I'm just gonna jump in. This may be a bit shorter than past episodes have been, but frankly, I don't care too much. <laughs> like, not to be mean or anything. Wait. Wait. If I'm on page 100... Stop. Hang on. Do I know how to do math? I don't think I know how to do math. Um. It's fine. It's fine. It'll all be fine. I'm just gonna trust myself, you know? I'm just- I'm actually just gonna trust myself. For once. Ahem. Chapter 11. The film crew turns up early the next morning. Two men and wit and a woman, all wearing black- Sorry, I heard my dog's collar jingling in the hallway. All wearing black turtlenecks. They come bearing equipment and fill our lane's end flat with noise. They start discussing schedules, snapping atmosphere shots, turning the cozy living room into a whirlwind of technical talk. Jacob gets whipped up by all the energy and starts playing his favorite game, which basically entails following around members of the crew, waving his hands in front of their faces and chatting as if he's a regular part of the fray. I sit on the sofa, polishing raindrops off my camera lens and trying to stay out of the way. Grim lounges beneath the window and I snap a photo as he yawns, transforming for an instant into a tiny black lion. That's a great camera, says the woman on the film crew. Vintage. Her own camera hangs around her neck, massive and high-tech and full of settings. She notices Grim. Oh, brilliant! Is this the cat from the covers? She kneels to grab a shot. Jacob hops up beside the cat and strikes a pose, winking at me, and I laugh. We both know he won't show up on those fancy digital cameras. I can already see the picture on her screen, but it's funny, knowing there's more to the image than they will ever see. I look down at my own camera. I don't have any way to see what I've shot, which means until I get it developed, the film inside will stay a mystery, waiting to be exposed. Mom and Dad appear, looking like they've stepped off the cover of one of their books, Dad in his tweed jacket, and Mom with her messy bun full of pens. I don't have a part to play. Apparently the network thought I'd add a fun, a fun family element, but my parents were more protective, and that's fine with me. I've never loved performing. I've always preferred being behind the camera. So I'm wrapped in a giant sweatshirt and leggings, watching while a man pins a tiny microphone to the inside of Dad's jacket. The woman pins a tiny microphone on Mom, who is busy, busy arranging her folders. 
Mom pulls out a sheet of paper with today's three filming locations. One, the Southbridge Vaults. Two, Mary King's Clothes. Three, the White Hart Inn. Here, Cassidy, says Dad, handing me a cell phone, and I perk up. This, he explains, is yours, but data isn't cheap. This is for calls and texts and emergencies, not Candy Crush. I roll my eyes. A bright ringtone goes off, but it's not coming from my new phone. One of the crewmen announces that Findley's downstairs. Findley, it turns out, is our official guy. Mom, Dad, and I head downstairs, along with the crew and Jacob, of course. Findley is waiting for us in the living ro- in the sitting room. He's a stocky man with a trim beard and a bald patch in the middle of his red curls that makes it look like he's wearing a crown. He re- reminds me a little of a red-headed, red-headed Hagrid. Mrs. Weathershire is pouring him a cup of tea. The cup's so small in his broad hand, it looks like she's dumping hot water straight into his palm. At the sight of our group, his face splits into a friendly smile. Findley Stewart, he introduces himself, eyes sparkling. I hear you're looking for a fright. Well, you came to the right place. His booming voice has the cadence of those storytellers Mom and I passed on the Royal Mile. Findley downs his tea in a single swallow and sets the cup aside. Shall we? With that, we set out on foot, Findley in the lead. Wouldn't want to waste a patch of good weather, he says. Around here, he explains, you savor the sun whenever you get it. Who knows how long it will last. Findley and Mom seem to have the same definition of good weather. The ground is damp, and slivers of blue skies peek through the clouds, but they're quickly swallowed by gray. Dad looks up, and as if on cue, a drop of rain hits his glasses. Finley smacks him on the back, laughs, and sets off down the road. As we cross Old Town, Finley rambles on about plagues and murders, grave robbers... Grave robbers and bodies buried in the buried in walls, as if talking about tea, cake, and nap in the sun. Dad has his journal out, jotting down notes, his attention torn between writing details and not tripping on the cobblestone street. Mom's caught up in Finley's tales, leaning in like a sunflower to the light. I know from experience that Dad will handle the history, and Mom's job will be to paint the story, to make the viewer believe. She's good at it. She used to tell me stories so vivid I dream about them after. Or one so scary I couldn't sleep. It turns out Finley was friends with the late Mr. Weathershire. Finley used to go to pubs with him all around the city, helped him collect those counts that spilled the dead man's journals. Finley seems to know a lot about the myths and legends of Edinburgh, which gives me an idea. Hey, Finley, I say, you know about the story of the Raven in Red? He rubs his head, thinking, Och, I, he says with a nod. Been a long while since I've heard it. My heart speeds up. It's one of those you're raised with as a child, he goes on. To keep you in your bed at night. Let me think. People tell it different ways. Some say she lost a child. Others say that she couldn't have one. Some that she was a widow. And others that she was a witch. But here's the version I know. Once there was a woman. A beauty with fair skin and black hair. And a little boy who loved to wander. And once there was a vicious winter, a snowstorm that turned the city white, and the boy went out to play and didn't come back. The woman put on the red cloak so her boy would see her, and went into the streets, and called for him, and sang for him, and cried for him, but he never came home. She searched all night, and all day, and she froze, or should have, but instead, something broke inside her. She began to set her sights on other children, began to call for them, and sing for them, and cry for them, until they came, drawn to her voice in her bright red cloak. A meet Jacob's gaze, concern crossing his face. 
All winter, she, she stole children, continues Finley, lured them away from warm beds and parent arms and safe places. Their bodies were found outside her door, frozen, at, frozen on their feet. I shiver at the thought, the memory of cold in my lungs, the idea of it climbing my skin, encasing me in ice. But why do they call her the Raven? The question comes from Jacob, but I repeat it to Findlay. Ah, says Findlay, perhaps for the birds that perch on her tombstone, or the colour of her hair, or the way the story goes that if she catches you, the hand on your arm will turn to talons, and her voice will crack into a rasping call, and her black hair will turn to wings, and she'll fly away with you in her craft, and you in her grip. She wants the city every winter, stealing children, feasting on their warmth. Like a pipe piper, prompts Mum. I and I, says Finley. The piper's a fairy tale. Our raven, she's a ghost, hung for her crimes and buried in her own Greyfriars Kirk. New mothers like bubbles and bells on the grave, he adds. Like a patron saint, only a prey for her to stay away. He breaks into a warm smile. But you needn't worry about the raven this time of year. She comes with the gold. <clears throat> then why, I wonder, did I see her in the graveyard? Why does she seem to want me? That pushes his glasses up. Do you believe in ghosts then, Mr. Stewart? <clears throat> Finley strokes his beard. <clears throat> I'll tell you what I believe in, Mr. Blake. I believe in history. That brightens. Right answer, I think. Finley goes on. Edinburgh's got an awful lot of history. Not all of it, Jerry. The kind of things my city's saying, well, it's bound to leave a mark. Now, whether they're, that's a gravestone or a ghost, I can't tell you. But you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't felt the spirit or, see, or seen a thing that makes them wonder. We turn onto a broad street called Southbridge, the first stop on our film, film and schedule. As we pass coffee shops and bookstores and a dozen other ordinary places, I begin to relax. I can feel the veil, but it's not exactly tapping on my shoulder. Instead, the pull is softer, brushing against the soles of my, of my shoes, as if we, as if wafting up from the street. I broke the accent, let's go. <clears throat> the crew members check their experience and start filming while my parents narrate. <clears throat> Southbridge, starts Mom, may look like an ordinary street, but the vaults nested below are the site of many, ha many hauntings. Oh, come on, I think, looking down. Nope, 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 says Jacob. Nineteen vaults, to be exact, says Dad. And it was indeed a bridge, he adds, before the city rose around it. Some say Southbridge was cursed from the start, Mom goes on. When the bridge was first completed, the honor of crossing it fell to a judge's wife. But she died days before the ceremony. Mom pauses in a doorway. Torn between their superstitions and their plans, the city decided to mark the bridge's opening by sending her coffin instead. Cut, says one of the crew. That's great. Our permit here is for tomorrow, says another, so we'll wait until then to film the vaults. Jacob and I both sigh in relief. We turn at the corner, and we're back on the Royal Mile, with its street performers and tour guides in old-fashioned clothes. The crew films what Finley calls B-roll, and Mom and Dad walking through the crowd, framed by the grand old buildings. Then Finley leads us to a small shop. The sign outside reads, The Real Mary King's Clothes. <clears throat> What's a close? I ask. A close, explains Dad, is a cluster of lanes and alleys where people used to work and live. But as the city spread, the new grew up over the old, and the lanes were buried. The underground streets were forgotten for centuries, and then they were found. 
That sounds promising, deadpans Jacob as we step inside, where I'm surprised to find, of all things, a gift shop. There are these tall wire racks that hold souvenirs and pamphlets and blown-up photos on the wall and a counter where you buy tickets, and none of it seems particularly scary. Ah, the television crew, says a woman behind the counter. We've been expecting you, adds a male colleague brightly. The woman rounds the counter and waves us toward a second set of doors. We can give you an hour, she says, opening the door. A cool draft billows through it, and, I, and a bad feeling wells in my chest. Mom glances at me. Sweetheart, she says, you don't have to come down with us if you don't want to. Did you hear that? Says Jacob. We could just stay up here where everything's nice and not haunt and not as haunted. But there it is again, that tap, 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 the urge to turn around and peel back the curtain. <clears throat> I square my shoulders. No, I say, I'm coming with. Jacob groans and Finley grins. There's our girl. <clears throat> The crew passes out what they call torches, apparently the British word for flashlight. Armed with a dull electric glow, we make our way down toward, down into the dark. Chapter 12. Uh, sorry, I just saw that my computer had pulled up the language menu option thingy, you know? <clears throat> sorry, getting Instagram notice. <clears> hmm. <throat> As we des chapter 12. As we descend, so does the temperature. It drops a little with every step. Only there are no steps, because the entrance to Mary King's clothes is like a set of stairs filled filed smooth, a downward slope lit only by dull yellow bulbs on the walls. Sheets hang on clotheslines overhead, and it's hard to believe that we're underground, even with the damp air and smell of old, of old earth, wet stone. But soon, the ground levels out. We reach the bottom of the slope. That wasn't so bad, I say. Finley laughs. Oh, lass, that wasn't the close. He takes my shoulder and turns me to the right. This is the close. Oh. It sprawls before me, a maze of narrow streets and covered doorways, stone arches and places where the light doesn't reach. I hear the distant trip of water and see shadows dancing on the walls. Jacob crosses his arms over his t-shirt. Well, this is just great. The camera crew sets up, testing their equipment and adjusting the, their lights. Almost forgot, says Finley. He hands Mom a small rectangular device. It looks like a walkie-talkie with a row of lights across the front. An EMF meter, Mom squeaks, delighted. Her voice echoes through the tunnels as she waves the device at me. Electric, electromagnetic field, she explains, to measure paranormal activity. She flips a switch, and the meter emits a faint hiss, like the sound of a radio between stations. <clears throat> Mom swings it back and forth, as if searching for a signal. Jacob shoots me a mischievous glance and takes a step forward, and takes a step toward it. The device comes to life, emitting a low tone. What do you know? Mom says. It works. I think of telling her that it's Jacob, but the last thing I need is for the show's crew to know my best friend is a ghost. Still, I have to admit, it's pretty cool, seeing his presence register on the device. Jacob steps back, and the sound dies away, leaving only the drip of water on stone, the shuffle of our feet. It's quiet down here, but not as quiet as it should be. The wind whistles, and I think I can and I think I hear someone calling the words just calling, the words just out of reach. When Finley catches me straining to hear, he smiles. It's just the old city playing tricks, he whispers. 
Or is it? Says Mom with a wink. And then she turns to the camera, and the filming starts. The trouble with Mary King's clothes, Mom begins, goes back to the plague. When it comes to corpses, offers Dad in his teacher's tone, there are two great sources in history, sickness and war. And Scotland's had plenty of both, adds Mom. Dad picks up, the story passed between them like a, like a relay, like a relay baton. When the plague came to Edinburgh and people fell sick, the healthy were so afraid of the ill that sometimes they buried them before they were dead. I shudder and look at Jacob, and he looks back, blue eyes wide in mock horror. Or maybe real horror. It's hard to tell when Jacob's actually scared and when he's just humoring me. This is how it is between us. He pretends to be scared, even when he's not. I pretend not to be scared, even when I am. I move closer to him. Even though Jacob's not flesh and blood, I feel better next to him. We stand edge to edge, as close as we can without me putting an elbow through his side. The veil taps on my shoulder, and my fingers tighten reflexively, tighten reflexively on my camera strap. Don't even think about it, warns Jacob. Don't worry, I think back. Warns Jacob, don't worry, I think back. I don't know if I read that right, but I'm just saying it again so I can make sure that I did, you know. Um. The veil dances at the edge of my sight, trying to tempt me to turn and look, but I don't. There's a darkness to it, a malice, like the energy in, in Greyfriars Friars Kirk. How do you make a ghost? asks Mom. She's speaking softly now, as if she's sitting on the edge of my bed. Maybe it's how a person lived, but I've always believed it's how they died. She wraps her knuckles on the nearest wall. There's a reason we call these spirits restless. This isn't at all like those cheesy ghost shows on TV. The way my parents speak, it's like Mom is reading a story out loud, like Dad's lecturing at the front of his class. They're naturals, and I'm so drawn in by their voices that for a few minutes, I forget to be afraid. Forget that we're standing in a buried maze, surrounded by bones. And, I, and then I glance sideways and find a pair of eyes staring out at me from a pale face. I yelp, knocking backwards into Findlay. Cut, calls one of the cameramen. Sorry, I mumble, feeling guilty for ruining the take. I saw the second cameraman swings his light into the shadows. It, it glances off the plastic sheen of a wax figurine. Oh, says Finley. Those are all over this place. For ambiance. That's perfectly normal, says Jacob dryly. Not messed up at all. Mom and Dad, the film crew, and Finley head down the hall. Down a hall. Uh, sorry, 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 sorry. My camera's, my computer's being weird. Um. Um. Mom and Dad, the film crew, and Finley head down a hall. When I start to follow them, the tap-tap-tap weakens a little. I turn and survey the corridor, taking a step in another direction. The veil gets stronger. If this were a game of hot and cold, I'd be getting warmer while my parents head straight into icy water. Mom and Dad may be brilliant, but they clearly don't know a thing about finding actual ghosts. I wait until they're between takes, the little red camera light safe lights safely off, before calling out, this way, this way, 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 my voice echoes. Mom and Dad double back, the crew, trail the crew trailing behind them. Find something? asks Finley. I shrug, just a feeling. We move through a low doorway. The world closes in, the ceiling falling to just above Dad's head, a narrow room, no windows. 
all stone. It reminds me of a tomb. The cameras start rolling, and the EMF meter goes off again. But this time, Jacob's nowhere near it. The volume shifts from the low tone it made before to a high whine, practically a wail. Well, this is a whole lot of no, says Jacob, backing away. Don't you dare leave me here, I hiss in my head. I've never been that claustrophobic, but I'm starting to wish I'd stayed street side. While Mom and Dad are filming, I retreat into the hall, and I don't notice a tap, tap, tap rushing up behind me until it's too late. The veil reaches out. When the lower streets were bricked over during the plague, says Dad, it grabs at my shoulders. Some of the victims were buried inside. It clutches at my sleeves. Case, Cass, warns Jacob as I squeeze my eyes shut. I won't turn around. I won't. I won't look. I won't. But in the end, it doesn't matter. The veil parts behind me, and I gasp, cold air flooding my lungs as I'm dragged under. Mary King's clothes is full of ghosts. They cough, call out, shuffle past. Someone lets out a packing sound. A bundle of rags on the ground rolls over. There's a person, was a person, in there. Bricks are piled on the damp ground, and half-built walls rise and fall to every side. Somewhere nearby, a fist pounds dully on stone. Jacob groans and runs a hand through his messy lawn hair. Cass! I didn't mean to, I say. I know, he answers, crossing his arms over his chest with a shiver. Let's just get out of here. I look around. The film crew and Finley and my parents have disappeared, swept behind the curtain. If I strain, I can still hear them, their voices ghostly, echoing. But when I reach for the veil, my hand finds something too solid, more like a wall than a curtain. That's not good. I try to swallow the rising panic as a skeletal man hobbles past. An old woman sobs. A family huddles together for warmth. Jacob inches closer to me, the air around us thick with fear and loss and illness. A ripple moves through the ghosts, their heads turning as they notice me, an intruder in their deaths, their memories, their world. The skeletal man stops walking. The old woman narrows her milky eyes. The family glares. Cassidy, whispers Jacob. I reach for the veil, hoping to catch the part in the curtain and cross back through. But it holds firm under my touch. I keep trying. This has never happened before. The ghosts are moving now, toward us. Jacob, I say slowly, trying to keep the panic out of my voice. A little help? Stay calm, he says. I'll get us out of here. He puts his hand on my arm and I can feel the bones in his fingers as his grip tightens. Still, nothing happens. Jacob? He grunts, like he's trying to lift something heavy. I can tell he's trying to pull us back through the veil, only it's definitely not working, because we're still here, and the ghosts are still coming toward us, bringing with them a wave of menace, malice, anger, terror, sickness, sorrow. It feels like ice water in my lungs, like aching cold in my bones. I can't peel the two apart, can't separate my memories from theirs, what I once felt from what they do now, over and over. Jacob! I gasp, breathless. I'm trying! Sorry message. I inch back until I'm standing against the wall. My hands fumble for the camera at my neck, clinging to it like a talisman, a reminder of what's real. My fingers brush one of the buttons, and the flash goes off. A flare of light bursts from my hands, a sudden, dazzling slash of light, slash of white in the darkened tunnels. The ghosts draw back, some shielding their eyes, others blinking, as if blinded. 
It won't last, but in that stolen second, Jacob grabs my hand and pulls me through a gap in the line of ghosts, and we run. Chapter 13 We bolt through the, ma the maze of underground alleys. I can feel the ghosts behind us, hear them coming, but I don't look back, feet carrying me over roofs, rough stone, through doorways and rooms and down corridors. At last, I spot a seat... A a set of stairs. Up. That's all I can think. Up. Every step takes us farther from Mary King's cross clothes and its ghostly mob and that horrible wave of feelings. Halfway to the street, the veil's thin enough for me to reach out and grab the curtain, which is finally cloth again, and force it aside. We tumble through, out of the veil and back into a world of pale light and fresh air. I gasp at the cold in my lungs, the sense of surging up from deep water. The weight of Jacob's hand is gone, but he's still there beside me. Sunlight filters through him as he leans back against the alley wall. I look around. Lost. No, not lost. It's hard to get lost when you can hear the, the noise of the Royal Mile in the distance. Plus, the ground slopes beneath me, so that up leads to one place, and down to another. I'm not lost, but I don't know where I am, either. I was so focused on getting out of Mary King's clothes, out of the bale, that I didn't exactly pay attention to the route. I must have taken a different set of stairs, because Jacob and I are standing on a narrow street I've never seen before. It's three parts gray stone to one part gray sky. There's no bustle, no noise. I slump back against the wall and slide down until I'm sitting on the ground, which is probably unsanitary, but I don't care. My skin still feels like it's coated in cobwebs, and every time I blink, I see the ghosts. The way they looked at me, with their want and their anger and their fear. I've been in plenty of haunted places, but I've never been to a place where the veil was stronger than I am. Stronger than Jacob. He's standing over me, arms crossed, and I wish for once I could read his mind because I can't read his face. We should have just gone for a walk in the city, I say at last. He sighs and crouches down beside me. Makes you miss creepy students and burning auditoriums, doesn't it? I try to smile. We sit for a moment, quiet except for the seagulls overhead and the faraway sound of bagpipes. You okay? Jacob asks, which I appreciate. He knows I'm not, but he still asks, and I know that if I lie, he won't call me out on it. We'll just pretend that we're normal, that he's not a mind-reading ghost, that I'm not whatever I am, that I'm not drawn toward places full of death like a rock rolling down a hill constant as gravity. What's wrong with me? Where should I start? He teases. I shoulder him, feel a prickle of cold as my arm goes straight through his sleeve. That tickles, he says, getting up. He holds out his hand and I wish I could take it. Instead, I push off the wall. I'm halfway to my feet when Jacob glances to his right and says, no way. I follow his gaze and see a girl crossing the road. I recognize her immediate instantly. The brown skin, the black hair pulled back in a neat braid. The girl from the lane's end. Lara Jane Chowdhury. As she walks, she holds her necklace in one hand, the mirror pendant spinning in her fingers, catching the light. What is she doing? wonders Jacob as Lara slips around a corner. No idea, I say, straightening up. But I want to find out. We follow her, rounding the corner just in time to see Lara stop, glance left and right, and then disappear. Right out of the street, and into nothing, which is impossible, unless, starts Jacob, I finish for him, unless she's like me. I remember the feeling of recognition, the way Lara looked at me and seemed to hear Jacob when he laughed. 
Do you believe in ghosts? She'd asked me. I crossed to the spot where she vanished, and I can feel the ripple of the curtain as it settles back into place. Lara didn't step into nothing. She stepped into the veil, and I'm already reaching out for it when Jacob cuts in front of me. No, he says. Did you forget what just happened? Did you forget the part where we got stuck? Of course not, I say. The memory of the ghost still fresh, but I've never met someone like me. I have to see. Have to know. I catch hold of the curtain, pulling it aside. You can stay here, I tell, I tell Jacob, and for a second, I think he's really going to, as if he can't hear my thoughts pounding with my pulse. You can stay, but I don't want you to. Jacob hops. Rule number nine, he grumbles, following me through. The veil is thinner here, the transition easy. The chill in my lungs is barely a breath, a shiver, and then it's gone. We pass through. My feet land on old stone streets. The light shines from my chest. Beside me, Jacob is solid and solidly ticked off. He gestures at the alley. Well? It's empty. No Lara, no ghosts, nothing but a thin mist. But that's not possible. I saw her disappear. I saw... A familiar English-accented voice cuts through the silence. Watch and listen. The words carry on the air, and when I follow them around the nearest corner, I see Lara standing at the bottom of a short set of steps. Her back is to us, and she's grayed out, the same way I am, with the same burning light inside her chest. And there, sprawled back against the stairs, as if trying to escape, is a ghost. A man my father's age. He's got a short beard and a long coat that pulls around him like a shadow. Lara's necklace dangles from her outstretched hand, mirror side hanging in front of the ghost like a hypnotist pendulum. Pendulum. Only, it's not swinging side to side. It's not moving at all. It stays perfectly still, and so does the man. Jacob's gone rigid behind me. I hold my breath. See and know, continues Lara. The words sound almost like a spell. Maybe they are a spell, because the ghost stays there on the steps, as if pinned. Lara stands tall, fingers splayed as she recites the third and final line. This is what you are. The air ripples with the force of the words, the whole veil shuddering. As I watch, the ghost goes thin, like, like glass and fog instead of flesh and bone. I can see straight through him, can see the thing coiled in his chest, a coil of rope, a ribbon, like mine, but without light. Lara reaches in and pulls the ribbon out. The end snags in his chest, but she gives it a swift tug. The dark thread comes free in her hand, hanging limply from her fingers for a moment before crumbling away to ash. An instant later, the man crumbles, too, just falls apart. One second a ghost, and the next gone. The breeze sweeps through the alley, sudden and unnatural, and blows the dust away. Jacob lets out a small gasp, and Lara's head snaps up. I shove Jacob sideways behind the corner and out of sight as she turns, brushing the last bits of dust from her hands. I stare in shock. In shock. She gives me a long, measured look, her brown eyes unblinking. What? She says at last. You act like you've never seen a ghost hunter before. Part 3. Ghost Hunters. Chapter 14. What do you... I trail off, unsure what to say. A ghost hunter? At the edge of my sight, Jacob shudders, and I'm suddenly glad she can't see him. I should have known, she goes on matter-of-factly. Known what? That you were like me. She loops the necklace back over her head, tucking the pendant underneath her shirt. I notice that the light in her chest is a warmer hue, rose-tinted, while mine is bluer, colder. 
I suppose, I suppose I suspected back at the lane's end, but you seemed so very clueless, almost like you do right now. Hey, I bristle. I knew there was something weird about you, too. She arches a perfect black brow. Really now? I just didn't know what it was, I explain. I didn't realize there were other people who could. Oh, she says, adjusting her braid. You thought you were the only one who's ever cheated death. The only one able to move through the in-between. How novel. In between? She gestures around us. Oh, I say. The veil. <clears throat> Lara Cross raises a brow. That's what you call this place? It's better than in between, I shoot back. Lara starts to protest when we're cut off by voices. Footsteps. The nearness of new ghosts. Laurel. Lara and I both stiffen. We shouldn't stay here. She turns... She says, turning on her heel and vanishing back through the veil without a second glance. I'm about to go after her when Jacob catches my wrist. I don't like this, he hisses. I don't like her. Did you see what she did to that guy? Because I did, Cass. She turned him to ash. I know. I saw. But my head is spinning with questions. Maybe Lara has answers. I pull free of Jacob's grip and step through the veil. There's a flush of cold, and then I'm back on the solid side of things. Jacob didn't follow me through. Lara pinches the bridge of her nose. Edinburgh gives me a headache. What did you? I start. I thought the in-between back in London was bad, but there's something about this city. Can't you feel it? Like a lead blanket. What did you do to him? I ask. Her eyes flick up. To who? The man on the steps. She crinkles her nose. He wasn't a man, she says primly. He was a ghost. I sent him on. Where? She shrugs. To the great unknown? To the silent side? To peace and quiet? Call it what you like. I sent him to the place beyond, where he's supposed to be. Supposed to be? Why? Lara's eyebrows go up. Excuse me? Why did you do it? She bristles. Because it's my job. Someone hired you to hunt ghosts? Of course not, she says. This is what we do. We? Hunt ghosts? I don't understand. And I must have said so out loud because Lara sighs and says, Obviously, ghosts don't stay in the in-between because they want to be there, Cassidy. They stay because they can't move on. They're stuck. It's up to us to set them free. Us. She frowns. What have you been doing in your veil if not hunting ghosts? Her eyes go to the camera around my neck. Oh god, tell me you're not sightseeing. Um, my mouth opens, closes. I don't know what to say. Her phone chimes with a text message, and she checks it. Ugh, I have to go. Wait, I manage. You can't just leave. I'm already late, she says, starting up the alley. I'm supposed to meet Aunt Alice at, at the museum. Mom and Dad insist on weekly bouts of cultural enrich enrichment or some such. Oh, she adds, almost as an afterthought. You do, you, you do know you're being haunted, right? A boy, she continues, holding up her hand. About this tall, scruffy blonde, scruffy blonde hair, bullseye shirt. I stiffen. No one else has ever been able to see Jacob. Yes, I say carefully. I know. Lara frowns. And you haven't done anything about it? Then there's a rock in my stomach, because I know what she means by that. It's in the job, job title, Ghost Hunter. He's my friend. She purses her lips as if tasting something sour. Bad idea, 
She looks like she's about to say more, but her cell phone dings again, and she just shakes her head and walks briskly toward the mouth of the alley. Wait, I say. Please, I've never met anyone else who's... who can... You said... A dozen questions tumble through my head, and she must be able to see them because she says, I'm in 1A. Huh? My flat, at the lane's end. Come by tomorrow morning. Ten o'clock. She steps out onto the street. Don't be late. I slump back against the wall, mind racing. This is what we do. My job. To hunt ghosts. To send them on. Is that why I'm able to cross the veil? And an even more unsettling question. Does Jacob know? Has he always known? As if on cue, Jacob reappears, rises right through, right up through the cobblestones, his arms crossed and his eyes dark. I can tell he's not happy. I try to push all the questions from my head so he can't hear them, but it's not like, but it's like he's not even listening. Did you have a nice chat? He asks coldly. Don't be like that, I say. I was just curious. I didn't know there were other people who could cross the veil. Did you? He scuffs the ground with his sneaker. No. He clearly, clearly doesn't want to talk anymore, but I can't stop the other questions from bubbling up. Did you know what I really was, Jacob? What I could do? He winces but says nothing. You said there were rules to the veil. There are. Once you couldn't tell me. Was that true, or did you just not want to? Jacob reddens and looks away, and it's as good as an answer. You didn't trust me, I say, surprised how much it hurts to put it into words. Jacob shakes his head. It's not like that, Cass. Rule number six of friendship, Jacob. Friends don't leave friends in the dark. He looks pained. I'm sorry. I was just... He shakes his head. Afraid. Of what? I ask. But before he can answer, my four emergencies only phone goes off in my pocket. Uh-oh. Cassidy, says Dad, sounding really worried when I answer. Where are you? Sorry, I say quickly. I needed some air, and then I got turned around. I follow Dad's instructions, Jacob on my heels, until we get back to the mouth of Mary King's clothes. Dad appears a second later, his hair must and his glasses dusty. There you are, he says. We've been looking everywhere. I called your phone four times before you answered. Apparently there's no cell reception in the veil. Dad turns and calls back down the tunnel. I found her. Found her. Found her. Found her. Echoes away. Sorry, I say, ducking my head. I guess I got a little spooked. <clears throat> Dad pulls me in for a hug. Can I tell you a secret? I nod, and he says, This place gives me the creeps, too. He squeezes my shoulder. But don't tell your mother, he adds. I've got a reputation to maintain. Mom shows up a few moments later, the camera crew and Finley in tow. That was brilliant, she says, cheeks flushed. Leave it to Mom to love a good scare. I bet she'd love it even more if she could see the other side. Dad shoots her a look and she sobers, her grin replaced by a very parental frown. Except for the part where you disappeared, young lady. That was decidedly not brilliant. My mom allowed a half-hearted apology. Findley winks at me. Have we made a believer of you yet? Oh, says Mom. Cassidy's always been a believer. Findley's rusty eyebrows go up. That so, he says with newfound respect. <clears throat> Her best friend is a spirit, and just like that, she takes me from interesting to crazy. Mom, I glare at her. She throws her arms around me. Embrace your strength. Embrace your strange, dear daughter. Where's the fun in being normal? Spoken like someone who doesn't see ghosts. <clears throat> Yet again, little 
Well, not a little bit, like 20 minutes. Um, shorter than a normal episode, but I don't care. Because, like, 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 I'm sorry if that sounded, like, callous or whatever, but, 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 um, I'm what I, what I mean is, oh man, I just threw myself into a pit, didn't I? <laughs> what I mean, what I mean by that is, um, it's not that big an issue to me personally if they're a little bit shorter. I don't, the way I delivered the I don't care seems so rude. I'm sorry, but, um, that was the last episode I needed to record today. I'm glad I got all that done. I have to do tomorrow, and then it'll be all made up. <clears throat> anyway, thanks for listening to this episode. I'm glad that you stuck around for it. Can't wait to vibe with you next time. Remember to drink water and fuck bitches. Bye!